Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we interview leaders in the data space from around the world, and we hear their stories, their lessons learned, their mistakes, their viewpoints, their learnings, everything that you need to fast track your career. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you're having a wonderful, wonderful week. Today, we're speaking with Rachel Fochtik. She's the Director of Analytics and Performance at the Martyr Health Services in Brisbane, Australia. Rachel has an extremely interesting career journey. She tells us all about it and um, is now and has spent a lot of time building data products. So for people who are passionate about visualization, or if you want to learn more about what's happening in that space, this will be a great episode for you. If you enjoy it, I'll ask you to please uh, share it with your friends. Thank you so much for your support. Here's the episode with Rachel. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Rachel. Rachel, thank you so much for being in the show. How are you doing today? No problem. Very well, thanks. Thanks for making the time. And at the beginning of the interviews, I always like to start by asking about the origin. How did you get into the data space in the first place? What was it that pulled you in? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think I'd sort of observed it from afar, thinking that it looked like a really good sort of field to be in to earn a good income at the time. It's the way that I thought about it, of course. But I didn't actually step into it on purpose. I kind of had a bit of a vision that I might like to do it, but actually didn't appear to set my goals that way or have that trajectory, if you like. Mm-hmm. I actually started in tourism. I worked as an inbound wholesaler in New Zealand. And then I moved over to the UK and worked for a travel company there. And it was actually there that I started my trajectory in the data space. So very uh, sort of wow, that's, convoluted that, way there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And what were you doing in the time that you were looking at data from afar? What were you doing then? So I had actually done a couple of little short stints to help people out in building databases with with information that sort of had to go and collect manually. So it was a little bit of data input and trying to find faster ways to get the data to do what I wanted. That's part of what made it look interesting. I started to realize that I had a real interest in numbers. But also, I, as a child, my father had kind of not allowed us to play games on computers unless we could code them. So we kind of had played a lot with coding and that side of things as well as children. So I had a real sort of interest in you know, being able to build things and use information. So that kind of was where the interest in it came from. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's really good. And once you started working in the data space, how has your career looked like since then? It's been an interesting trajectory, actually. I mean, I could tell you how I got into the data as well. I think that's probably a slightly interesting story as well. I was hired as, because I was a wholesaler, I wasn't very well versed in dealing directly with customer retail or tourism. We sort of planned package tours and things like that instead. So it was kind of a new space. So it wasn't easy for me to just get into that in, in another country, which I didn't, in the country I didn't know well. So I started actually as an EA or a PA to the director or the managing director of a travel company. It's a global travel company. And there wasn't enough work for me to do for him because he was never really there. And so the sales director tried to give me some of his work to do. And he would give me an Excel spreadsheet and he would ask me to key in the numbers. And he'd stand over my shoulder and ask me to key in the numbers and then use a calculate the values and finish the results. And he was taking the numbers from a printed report that had come out of Crystal Reports. 
So it just seemed a little bit backwards to me. So when he was on leave, I was able to actually get in there and do something about it. Before that, he micromanaged in that space. But it was quite handy to uh, go down and see the IT department and see where that data actually flowed in from. And from there, I started to play and build things that really interested the managing director. And I guess it was that doing more than I'm supposed to do was probably very important there. And I would say that throughout throughout my career, that's been a very important feature, just doing more than you're supposed to. I love that because there's so many people that are working sort of around data, but not necessarily in data. That, I mean, functions similar to the one that you had around where the, the crystal reports were essentially adjacent to your work. And by you diving into it, you were able to show value of what you could do and move into the data space. You effectively turned your job into a data role. <laughs> Yes. Actually, within three months, I was yeah. named data manager. They changed my role title and actually became a purposeful role. It wasn't just accidentally doing it. So That's incredible. And I get from the audience, I get so many questions from people asking exactly how to make that transition, where they say, you know, they might be a chemical engineer or they might be a business analyst or they might be working in marketing and they're dream is to move into the data space and so many people are asking how to do it and this is a perfect example yeah. of something i always tell them i said if you show the value there's always yeah. a need Absolutely. for data but how... you've got to really be interested in it if you're not interested you won't be able to easily show value so you do need to also be passionate about it and excited and interested by it to be able to show value from it if you're trying to force it because you see it as a good monetary route don't do it it's, uh-huh. it's not the way <laughs> No, that's, I think that's a great advice. And how did you discover your passion for it? I think that was something that was sort of already growing from my interest before, you know, with coding and playing with databases, et cetera, before for different things. But I think what really turned me would be the excitement that I saw on the managing director's face when he realized he was starting to see the actual profitability of his company and the areas where he could make a huge difference by just changing a particular practice, that's when I went, ah, there's an opportunity here to make a real difference in an organization. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And what did you do in your time as data manager there? So I was there for about five years and we, he had actually 16, the managing director was very personable and quite, it was almost, he had a slightly small business mentality with a very big focus. I don't know how to explain that, but so very personable and, you know, easy to talk to and work with. And he had 16 offices. So we started off with two offices. So the work that I did on the first office to show him the profitability of that particular office, he then said, can you join that together with the US office? And at that point, he got became really excited and realized that he now had the ability to compare, to see the opportunities where he could show best practices and identify areas where he could improve some of the other offices. And he had 16 offices in all. And so he obviously then wanted to expand that to the remaining offices. And so we'd started small. We'd obviously been building off access database and a crystal report. And now the question right. was, well, actually, how do we scale this up and make this something bigger? We hired in actually a um, consulting firm at that point, and they helped uh-huh. us to build up a, a data mart, if you like, and we started bringing in all 16 offices and applying this same analytics now on, we changed the tool to business objects. We um, hired a group of, actually, they were developers rather than analysts, because you have to remember, this is 20 years ago, and back then, Correct. the knowledge set not- and the skill set wasn't there. Yeah, that's right. So most of the people that sort of got into that were developers and coders, web developers, that type of people. So we had a set of developers out in India that were helping us to develop 
some of that work. So they were getting in on the SQL side, but they were also trying to do some of the visual stuff. Um, it was an interesting time because the skill sets weren't really all that appropriate to it. So it was quite a lot of intensive training, and but really quite a good experience, I guess, training up a team out in India and working with an external team. But it became quite a um, an interesting role, actually coordinating all of that, and it really became leadership quite quickly. Very, very quickly. And obviously internal and external leadership. And I really love the fact that you started with what you had in hand. So the fact that you started with an access database and with crystal reports and made it work and showed the value and yeah. developed it from there. So yeah, you started with what you had, but then you didn't stay there either. So that you took it to a next level by developing a warehouse and data marts and getting the external help. I love that. Uh, what motivated you to keep improving it in a technical sense when you were trailblazing? Um, I think the trailblazing is the motivator in itself. It's really exciting to see the opportunities opening up, the interest, especially this particular managing director. He was extremely excited by the opportunities and continually pushing for more. And I always liked to answer his needs, I guess, and I thought that was really important. We did a lot of focus then on his quality, the quality of the work outputs from his teams and all of that stuff. And I think then we started to form real opinions and thoughts around things like governance and structure. Because remember, we are building trailblazing. Now we have to try and start to put in some structure and some rules. So the data governance became a very early piece because he would come in and say, oh, those numbers aren't right for this particular customer. I wouldn't want the customer to see this. And and then you, because we also were doing external reporting. So there was internal performance, but then there was external reporting to the clients, which became a part of it as well. Wow. So sales director would also come in and say, I want to change these numbers. I'm sitting there going, you actually can't. <laughs> I mean, we could have, we could have, but to actually argue with the managing director when he wants to change the numbers was was quite a, a fight at first. But I kind of did a lot of research because intuitively I knew that it wouldn't be a good thing to change because retrospectively then you've got to try and solve it because then how do we get your numbers to match up afterwards when you've tweaked the customer's numbers here? The other side of that story now no longer matches and you try to match that to your account stuff, well, you've got a problem. So I think um, very early on the need for data governance became very obvious and important and, and then the security aspect of who can and can't see some of the reporting and some of the data and things like that, but it all grew organically. So we started to really understand and see the needs for the governance and, and for standards. Standards was something that at first I hadn't really considered, but as you started to realize the way that things looked visually, if you mix up your colors and you do different standards, you do different fonts, things don't look nice. And you slowly kind of realize that you need standards on the way that you visualize it. But then also with your coding, with your SQL scripts, etc., if you've just got them all jumbled, then you don't have any structure. So slowly we started to realize the needs for standards and especially once you start managing a team because it's all very well by myself. I understood it all, but now how do I make sure that the team can carry on and pick it up and still understand what I've done? So I guess I learned the stuff that a lot of people learn at university. I learned it on the go, trying to make sure that these standards were in. It's fantastic that in a single role, you took it so far. It seemed like you you were providing so much value, you had so much room to grow, and you were making use of that by constantly pushing yourself to improve the deliverables of the department. That's fantastic. And That was uh, exciting times. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> No, 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 no. Okay. I'm, I'm sure. No, this is fantastic. Actually, this is a, I'm loving this part of the story. And from a business perspective, what were the metrics that you were helping improve or the areas of the business that you were helping optimize? 
Actually, uh, we touched on quite a lot of areas. It's one of the things in analytics you generally do. You end up being involved in many, many areas of business. In fact, if not all. Certainly within that area, I didn't get so involved in HR metrics. I was actually involved in HR in that role, but not in HR metrics so much. I got very heavily involved in the financial performance. So there was a lot of metrics around that, but also employee um, quality, so the quality of work that people did. A lot of metrics around that and KPIs to kind of help realize that they're reaching targets. Yeah, so not, it's not so much in this role that I get involved in any HR metrics. Many other roles I have been for sure. Other areas, yeah. you get involved in, in just about every area anyway. You get very involved in the operations, not just in quality, but helping to provide numbers that help make decisions. Certainly for sales and marketing, there's a lot of information there that helps. And any areas that are stand out in your memory, something that you really enjoyed doing or something where you made a, a big difference or contribution? I would say, so if, if we're just talking about this particular role, it was definitely that very first bit where I realized that we could make a difference in the performance of the organization and I could see that performance actually changing through those numbers and through the charts. I'd say that that's a standout. I mean, throughout time, my realization of the need for things to be much more customer driven, I think there was a lot of learning to still do there that I didn't have at that point was the ability to really understand the users. Why do you say that? It was there because the managing director was extremely involved. But as time goes, you to be able to deliver analytics that really meets the needs say, of HR or even operations, you actually have to deeply understand those areas and yes. really develop an empathy with those people. And so often doing, especially in the operational side, I found that I was doing work in a more of a silo without the involvement of those users. And the ability for that work to really be accepted and used was a lot more reduced than, say, the work that I'd been doing with the managing director where he was heavily involved and it was answering his needs and he was able to influence and change his company based on them. So I guess that's so that sort of a realization that came to me a little bit later, probably not even in that role, really. Wow. Yeah. And what was the difference in how you worked with the managing direction, managing director and the way that you worked with some of the operational sides of the business? Yeah, so quite often the operational work was, and if you have to remember back that time 20 years ago, the culture was a little bit different. You did reporting to measure performance and almost to discipline. So it was easy for me to be in with the managing director because he was very involved in wanting to use that for that purpose and use the analytics to kind of help guide his company that way. But with the operations, it was seen more as a risk. So I wasn't being seen there as someone to be open with and easily share because the work that we would do would probably be seen as a tool to whip them with and give them a little bit more exposure than they want. So, yeah, it was seen as a risk at that time. I had a lot of socializing to do to kind of change that, but I don't think that I really grasped the need for that at that point. It's something that I grasped later in my career, if you like. That is so interesting. And I completely agree. I had a very similar start where my first role in data was in a small business where I also developed their database and access and built some reports and I could just relate so much. I also remember those times and I made the same, I operated in the same way that I was very close with the owner of the company because it was a small business. So he was the 
the managing director, but I was not very close with the operational side. I can completely relate. I find it fascinating. You definitely did extremely well in that role and took it much further than I did in mine. But I can remember those early days and the excitement I felt like you when you can see the difference that that this can make in an organization. Ah, phenomenal. I love it. I love it. And from then, what was your next role? So I actually moved from there into a role, first of all, with the Diners Club. It interested me because the goal there was to create a bit of cohesion between the banking side of things and the tourism side of things. So what they really wanted there was all of the travel agencies to supply the right data in the right format for it to match really well and come out really well on their statements. And Diners Club actually at that time had quite a bad reputation for their matching. They didn't really have well-matched data. I would love to say that I was responsible for a big turnaround and that it all changed. Time-wise, I did make a difference for sure, but the time was probably a bit short. They then sold the company from Citigroup to, I think, a, um Italian company. So I was made redundant and snapped up by Citi themselves. So then I changed from tourism at that point to banking and finance, which was quite an interesting change. Right, I bet. And with the credit card, right, and the diners club, what yep. data were you matching? Banking transactions. So you imagine you go and tap your diners club card at a at a restaurant. Oh, let's not say a restaurant, but more likely a travel agent thing. So a air for an airline flight or something of that sort. So travel agencies would have your credit card details on file. So the bank would obviously have the transaction registering through their bank, but they wouldn't have the actual details of what was that flight, what airline. They might have the airline name, but that's about it. They wouldn't actually have that it was a flight from Charles de Gaulle to London Heathrow, for example. You wouldn't have that detail there. So that was kind of helping with that, or that they stayed in the hotel and this was the hotel that they stayed and these were the dates that they stayed, that type of thing. So there was a little bit of matching to give a bit more information about the transaction. Wow. Yeah. And this is in the, I think, pre-advanced for, because this is in the, around the, the early 2000s. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. It was advanced at that time. It was about making sure that they had the right flow to come through into the actual, so that often what would happen is files wouldn't, would, would get rejected. So a big bunch of data was miss, missing. And so it was actually working closely with the travel agencies to help them change their structure and get their files flowing through neatly. So a bit of almost like a bit of consulting there in terms of getting the customer buy-in and getting them to change. That's right. It was. Yeah, it's a real change aspect to it. And some of them were really keen to work with us and get it right, and some of them just didn't care. And it was the ones that didn't yeah. care that you had to influence and kind of help them care, <laughs> if you like. Yes. So, yeah, those are the more interesting ones you needed to sort of become more friends with, if you like, and build a relationship and rapport with them that made them keen to work with us. And was there a benefit for them from the data matching? Not really, no. That's why it was a bit of a hard sell in that respect. As far as they're concerned, yeah, sometimes it was actually. It was more that there was a lack of benefit. When customers had a specific travel agent and they lodged their lodge card with that travel agent and they couldn't see the detail, then they would start to complain to the travel agent. So yes, there was a benefit. Sorry, I had to think that through. There actually was. Yeah, There was yeah, a need no, for them to get it right. Yeah, because for the companies, it would be a huge benefit to have that data matched for their statements so they can see that certain employee had a conference and booked a flight and accommodation and that yeah. that information comes all in one. Actually, one of the customers actually came to us directly as well, and I had to do a major report for them on their, their um, staff activity. You have to realize that it was actually, so this was actually for... I can't remember the name of it now, Bombardier, that's right. They're a major trainer organization in the UK. 
and they had a need to assess or, or look at all of their activity and we had to do a big assessment on that. That was a really interesting piece. It helped them understand mm-hmm. what their staff are spending their money on. So it was quite good. Yeah, most of the and cases then, I was involved in the travel agent more than the clients. Really, really interesting. And then you were in city, you said. That's right. Yeah, I worked in the global transaction services section, which catered to, they've changed the name of it now. I, I'm not too sure what they've called themselves now, but they were catering then to banking institutes, insurance companies, funds, large funds, some hedge funds, a few different organizations like that. Yeah, it was quite an interesting role. So there were two parts to that role. The first part was where I was initially hired was in the implementation services area, and they actually wanted me to create bespoke reporting tools for them. So I was no longer sitting in the business objects arena or, in fact, any anything of that sort, and they wanted me to create tools that we could then build out. And so I actually did these all in Microsoft Access, which was really, really quite a cool experience, building applications that didn't look like they were Microsoft Access and getting them to do things that just wasn't out of the box with Microsoft Access, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so I created a number of kind of bespoke reporting tools. One of them was providing actual Excel documents, Excel reports out, but in a nicely laid out professional looking format. So you couldn't really, when you opened it, tell that it was Microsoft Excel documents. And that was just sounds a bit simple, but it was collating all of their account information. Yeah. And then another part of that was a pre-population document tool. I did things a little bit differently there too. I liked to try and do things that weren't the same as what other people do. It's a bit bit bad and a bit good in that way. I'm sort of more inventive. So I created an input tool where the users could define what would be on that form, not on the output, but on the actual form not explaining myself very well. I'm sorry. I'll try. No, um, no you are. So you're saying that the user can design almost like the layout of the form and then that Yeah, of the input form, though. Of the input form first. So because different jurisdictions and different areas had different forms and even different banks had different forms that needed to be filled in by clients to actually open up specific accounts. So it meant that there was a real variety of input pieces that were needed. So I gave a much more tailorable form creation so that they could have different forms. It was still the one form, but if they chose a particular jurisdiction, the form would come out exactly laid out how they wanted it and needed it. At that time, it was still relatively new to be doing things like that. It's definitely not now. It's a very common thing to do. But in those days, it was still quite new to do that. So I was quite proud of my ingenuity in that, if you like. And then these populated out onto forms that existed or needed to be printed. And how did you come up with the idea at the beginning? Well, it's because I didn't want, I've always tried to go for the minimalist view. And I think that's really quite an important thing to remember when you're building for your clients, et cetera, not to try and build them lots of stuff. And actually back in those days, it was common to just build a lot of stuff. So you would have a lot of pages doing one function, if you like, when you could just make that repeatable. So it was, how do I make that repeatable? And I hadn't learned coding properly at this point. I hadn't done any of that sort of um, object-oriented programming. So I was kind of learning it on the go, learning to sort of define ways of doing object-oriented programming without realizing that's what I was doing. Just using that kind of single page to do multiple functions, that makes sense. That's great. How was it overcoming the challenges in the implementation? Obviously, you had to dive into object-oriented programming in order to get there. How was that journey? 
that's the sort of thing that I love is working stuff out. I love to find my way around something to make it the quickest or the most efficient. So for me, that was just like exciting stuff. Some people perhaps don't find that exciting, but for me, I love it. That's the way I've always done things. Even when I worked in uh, a McDonald's type environment, it was always a case of, well, how can I make it so I do this quicker and, and more efficient and minimize the amount of movements, etc. So that's how I always got in and did these things because that's what made it fun. Otherwise, it could be boring. That is fantastic mindset. I love it because you don't start with the constraints of what's in front of you. You don't say, okay, this is the pieces that I have to play with. What's the best I can do with this? You almost like take them off the table and say, what's the best way to do this? Absolutely. And to the frustration of my team, I still approach things that way. Why I say it's frustrating <laughs> to my team is, I'm like, why don't you just think about what, what we've actually got on the table here? <laughs> it's like, I actually would like it to look like this. But the toolkit doesn't do that. Well, make it do that. Yes. So I think that, that it sometimes does frustrate them. But yeah, I think we, or it's not just make them do that. It's also find another way. If, if that toolkit can't do it, then how can we do it? Correct. How can we do it? And that's a great way to keep advancing. It's a great way to approach problems and new situations. So you're always challenging yourself from a technical perspective because you're finding for the most optimal and most efficient way to solve the problem in front of you. I love that mindset so much. Where does that come from for you? Actually, my father, I would have said my father is very much the same mindset. I'd say that uh -huh. it's ingrained. He, he always, in fact, his favorite saying was, good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good is better and your better, best. And it was kind of always a case of find the best way. Don't just stick with what you know or, or what you've done before. Try and improve on it. Always improve on it. So, yeah, and I guess it's the same. Don't just go for the easiest route. Tackle it in a different way. Find a better way and improve on it. I'm so impressed. That's amazing. He was a good man. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you very much for sharing that. And how was the rest of your time at City? Oh, really good. I moved from there, actually, from developing into, well, I still was developing very much so throughout the whole time, but I went more into a product management role, which was also a very interesting role. And there I was building out some of this work that I'd been doing before with a technical team to do that work. Whereas previously for that little while, I'd actually been doing a lot of that work all by myself as opposed to having a team to do that with me. So it changed to not HR managing. I was sort of dotted line managing a team who still had a different reporting line, which sometimes made for a bit of frustration, as you can well imagine. But it was still a very, very interesting role. And we focused a lot more now on our external customer and the different toolkits. Okay. So we started using, so from there, we were still making a lot of bespoke things, but we then started making more using tool sets that existed. So we started again. So I'd been obviously on the business objects journey and crystal reports before, and then coming into City, we dropped all of those tools and started making our own tools for that. I had created a reporting engine, if you like, on the back of Access as well that did exactly what we needed to report on what we've been sending out or those types of things. So it was quite nice to get back into some of these uh, other tool sets that actually had some of this functionality again. So we started particularly on um, ClickView at that time, so ClickSense didn't exist then, building mm -hmm. out analytics for customers with ClickView. And we trialed a few with a few customers. They were quite excited about what we were doing. But I think there, my biggest schooling really was visualization. I had a, a really great manager. He's a really nice guy. He was very strict, though, on the way that things looked. It was 
very, very important to him. And if you walked into his office, you'd see his office was always as neat as a pin. He would always put his pen exactly in the right location on his desk and papers were square and neat. And the work that he did was always absolutely amazing. It wasn't any of this sort of low professional stuff that you see just in Excel with maybe a heading. It was, he had to do something in Excel that was absolutely spectacular. And he always held me to the same standard, which I thought was a really great schooling. Sometimes frustrating and sometimes I would grumble, but the fact is it was probably one of the best schoolings for understanding the importance of the way that things look. So, you know, getting your colors right, getting the the layout right, making sure it really does fit the user experience. Probably one of the best bit of schooling that I've ever had. I probably learned the most in that period out of anywhere. And I learned a lot, as you can see, on my journey. But I think that was really quite intense and very good. Wow. And and um, what do you think that attention to that detail, what do you think it communicates to the users? It tells them that it's professional. I think that's the very first thing. I think it's really important that users can trust what they're seeing. And if it doesn't look neat, they often already will approach it with distrust. I mean, just imagine this picture. I'll try and draw it with words as well as I can. Imagine a lady or a man has come in and they're really harassed. They're not dressed well. Their hair's all over the place. And they've come running into a room looking all frazzled, going, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Will you believe them? Unlikely. Uh Now imagine a man has come in or a woman, they're well-dressed, their hair is neat, they've got their makeup on place, they don't look frazzled, but they've come in and they've said, everybody, we need to leave now, the sky is falling. I can guarantee you that people will follow them before they think, is it possible that the sky would be falling? I mean, that's just a really sort of simple diagram, but the fact is that if something is well presented, it is much more likely to be trusted than something that isn't well presented. I mean, you still have to make sure that it's accurate. I mean, in that scenario that I've just told you, people walking out the door would suddenly go, oh, actually, does that make sense? But initial reaction would be to follow, wouldn't it? So you still have to make sure that even though it's well presented, it's not well presented garbage. Yeah. So then it lowers the having something that's consistent, easy to digest, professional looking. It it lowers the barriers and makes your message a lot more accessible and able to be communicated and taken on by by the consumer. That's right, exactly. I have seen a number of cases where people make things coloured well and you could almost say it's presentable, but it's way too busy and it's very difficult then to take a story from that information. I think it's well worth considering that too. So you could present something really well and make it look nice, but if people can't follow a story through and it's still ineffective and it still isn't necessarily going to deliver the value or hold the trust either. That's very true. And how do you walk that line, where's the balance between having something too busy and having something that is able to convey an effective story? That's a very good question. It's often a difficult line to walk exactly right. Again, you need to understand your users. And when you're building, you have to understand there's often different tools for different things. Often when you're building a dashboard, as an example, you're building it for a multiple user set. And therefore, it's very difficult to make a single story that is easy and and possible to read. So in that framework, you actually need to provide tools that make it easy for people to take that information and make their own story. So it should still be well presented. You should still have, okay, what are the questions we're going to be answering with this tool set? And what are the drivers that they would be looking for that particular question? But it's far more generalized. When you come to the other side where you're using it to tell a particular story, for example, you're using it to justify why you need additional resource, then you would use a far more targeted set of chart and drivers and pieces of information and you would need to lay it out in such a way that it tells that story effectively. That would even be the case of if you want to show that trend, 
for example, you would highlight that particular trend that you're trying to show and make the others all grey, just so that people can see what you're actually getting at. And you would use colour well, so it puts emphasis on the pieces of the story that you're trying to say. You would use your groupings well to make sure that things were well grouped to tell a particular story. And you would use your white space effectively, so you would make sure that there's enough. I mean, if I and just think about it in talking, I'm talking a lot, right? I'm, I'm talking and talking and talking. If I don't use pauses effectively, then it doesn't give people time to stop and hear properly. And that means that my story is no longer as effective as it could be if I used my pauses better, which maybe I should be working on, by the way. <laughs> but it's the same on a piece of paper. If you have pauses, they give people a chance to be able to understand that story and that grouping. Whereas if everything is all jumbled together, there are no pauses, if you like. I'm just calling white space the pauses, but keeping things yes. uncluttered and clear. That's excellent. And how would you decide what goes on a page? Is that from what the customer or the user is asking for? It's based on two things. So one, definitely your, your deep understanding and empathy of the customer. That has to be absolutely paramount in there. The second is your understanding of the actual processes and pieces that you're actually trying to articulate about. So very first, what is the problem that you are trying to solve with this piece of paper? What is the problem? And then understanding, well, what are the drivers for this then? I can see now that the problem is standing out on the chart that I've put in front of you, but what's causing that? So ensuring that the story that is there is well articulated with the problem and the causes, that to me is a well done page. If a person has to go between a lot of pages to understand the causes of the problem that you're trying to articulate, it's not really going to be an effective piece. And I think as well in terms of layout, it's considering where the eye goes first. Normally the top left, I, I like to make a, a reasonably bold statement in the top left. But if you're wanting to make a, a couple of really bold statements, then your next one needs to actually draw the eye. So the color of it will be really important to draw your eye to that next statement and the positioning of it. So using lines effectively to draw the eye down, for example, or to draw, draw the eye across, those sorts of layout things that help to direct or drive the user through the story. That's really great. Yeah, but as well, really understanding the purpose again. Is the purpose, if you're creating a dashboard, for example, is the purpose to tell 10 stories or is the purpose mm -hmm. only to tell one? Because if the purpose is to tell 10, then it's really just making sure that the key piece, and I'm at the moment working in a healthcare environment, from a healthcare environment, maybe we're looking at, say, the length of stay of patients in hospital, just as an example. If we were sort of talking about an average length of stay, then that would be the key piece. Look, your average length of stay is that. That. But what does that mean? Is it good? Is it bad? How does it compare? Is it compared to other benchmarks? That sort of information and the surrounding information around that number is very important in that same space. But then what are the drivers of length of stay? What causes length of stay to go up or down? Having those pieces sort of well articulated as well around it in a way that flows nicely is important. But if you were doing that as a dashboard for a lot of people to take, you wouldn't necessarily have a clear story because they need to kind of pick their own path. But if, if I was wanting to talk to the um, CEO of health, for example, and say to him, look, the length of stay, average length of stay is this, and I can see that these are the causes, I would only put those particular causes that were really important to it on the page. It's two different ways of presenting and keeping those in mind when you're developing are important so the audience is 
That is great. And I think that the way that you think in terms of creating new solutions and having that empathy for the customer and having a focus on how they will consume the information and what the visualizations will communicate to them, I think it's a great fit for that product manager role that you had in at the time in City. But can you describe for us what is a, a product manager? Yes, sure. A product manager is a person who will go out and understand what is in the marketplace at the moment and what is important to the customer itself. They will define a strategy that meets the needs of the customers for the particular product line that they are working in. And they will also manage the project. So often they either have a project manager that they manage or they are also the project manager. And quite a lot of times you'll see a product manager does have to do both. They'll manage the budgets for the particular product and ensure that the product is developed in the time that kind of said, they'll set the expectations and that type of thing. So. Excellent. That's really, really good. And what you were in this role for about 10 years, what kept yeah. you interested during all that time? It was always diverse. I never had the same role throughout the whole time. It changed probably every two years or so, still within this uh, sort of vein, but changing. That kept me there. I'd normally like to sort of give between two and you can see my career about two, between two and five years normally between uh, for each role. If the role doesn't change after two years, I will definitely move on. But the role keeps on changing and growing and that kept me there. Fantastic. That's a really good way to look at it, to see like what, where am I growing in this role? Yeah. And you definitely drive that. That's amazing. And so from, and then from city, where, where did you go on to next? So I moved over to Australia actually. So I was, I spent all of that time that I've discussed with you actually in London. And then I moved to Australia and I kind of had to step back down because I'd been progressing my career through and I was up, up to vice president, but the American type of system there, vice president is sort of that role just before director. So I kind of had to step back down again. I worked in consulting for, no, contracting, sorry, not consulting for a while. And mm-hmm. I worked with CS Energy there and helped them to reframe and redesign a new look and feel of their analytics and I think uh, there was a lot of interest in the work that I did there but it was just a contract role so I moved from there into healthcare with the Department of Health in Queensland Uh Um, and there I helped there I helped them to also create a bit of a standard. With the advent of some of the more recent tool sets, Click and Tableau and Power BI, those tool sets all advocate for a distributed environment. They don't really advocate for having a centralized data architecture. And the reason for that is because they have been targeting the business users as opposed to the technical people, which is great. I think putting the tools in the hand of the business is very, very important. But at the same time, if you do that, you're creating a lot of risk. And the risk would be that you are now creating too many versions of the truth. And so there still needs to be a set of standards. And also, depending on the literacy of your users, so in healthcare particularly, the literacy is very varied. You have some very low literacy users and then some very high literacy users. Because of that sort of um, unfocused, if you like, set of analytics, it meant that even the Department of Health had a need for a lot more structured creation of visualization for fitting the user's needs, but in a way that was standardized so users knew where they were going and could easily pick up another chart and another, sorry, pick up another application, if you like, and another reporting application and be able to understand how to use them all effectively. So creating standards there for the Department of Health was one of the things that I did, but it also helped them to define a much more centralized architecture for their data as well. And that was for the FlexView 
application. They didn't stay there very long, so they've they've gone on and carried on developing and building it up and things without me there. I moved on from there to the Mata. It was a great opportunity came up. The opportunity wow. there was for me to actually start something from new, from the ground again. I like that. I love the greenfield sort of approaches. I had greenfields, obviously, for quite a few of the pieces of my career, so it was quite nice to do it again. And so there I implemented uh, ClickSense platform. It had a single user interface that was easy for users to use. It wasn't just out-of-the-box click. I, I'm not really, you know me, I've already said this already. I don't just do stuff out-of-the-box. I'll find ways around things. And, and one of the things that we did find with ClickSense was that it had really great flexibility. The out-of-the-box solutions weren't really ideal for the users. So we did do quite a lot of optimizing it and making it better for the purposes that we had. So that and also creating a centralized architecture and centralized view of the patient and that. And I really enjoy that atmosphere. What I enjoy about that is the opportunity to actually to change things for patients to, to make a difference. When I was a child, I always wanted to be a nurse until I realized what it involved and a lot of blood and guts and I changed my mind. <laughs> so it was kind of nice to then actually be involved in something that still fitted that where I did really want to be able to help people but it now meant I could do it with something that was I was passionate about so yeah that's been interesting but where I've kind of I think really added value at the martyr apart from implementing this is the change in approach where we're not building for users anymore we're helping users build for themselves we do still build stuff for users, don't get me wrong, but I think we should be changing our approach and starting to train people in becoming data literate, helping them to understand how they can use it effectively in their roles and giving them some responsibility and buy-in on it because the amount of times that throughout time I've developed things and the users have gone, oh, that's great, and then nothing more. You don't see them really using yes. it. The uptake's not really there. And the reason for that is because there's no real buy-in. When you change that dynamic and you now get your users to create, they do a lot of that change management stuff too because they're so excited about their product that they grab people in and they get them to have a look at it. They listen to them for feedback. They adapt and change it. And they do all those things that the analysts should really be doing. And they're becoming the analysts in effect, but they are already a person with that knowledge of that area. And I'll just give you a bit of an example. It's very difficult for me as an analyst to be a brain surgeon. I can't go into a surgery now and just pick up a scalpel and alter a person's um, brain and change it and fix it. That's not what I'm trained to do. And therefore, I also find it hard to really understand what that brain surgeon even does for a job. I can't easily put myself in his shoes, but I can train him how to do what I do. And if I can train him to do what I do, then he can use the power of his knowledge as a brain surgeon and my knowledge as an analyst and do some amazing stuff that will really drive change. We've seen quite a few cases of that. An example might be an improvement of the referral processing piece. So if you just imagine the, the dynamics first, if, if you've got um, referrals coming in from doctors and they need to be coded in time and put into a wait list in a good timely fashion to ensure that the patient is being seen on time and the risk of not doing it on time is that patients can actually die. So uh. the improvement of referral timeliness really critical to the safety of patients. And we had a, a person come in from outpatients who really knew that area well and was able to, had a, built a relationship with those team members and understood the dynamics in the environment. And she was able to build something really effective that made a big difference to that environment. I mean, it improved the efficiency, I think, good, like doubled the efficiency. It was really quite a dramatic impact. And she was able to share it with the rest of the organization as well. And a lot of people then came after and said, well, we would like the same. This is really quite fantastic. 
That's incredible. Yeah. I was going to ask you, as the workforce in an organization becomes data literate and is able to self-service some of their data needs, which I think is definitely the way to go. I, I totally agree with yeah, you. I definitely um, 100%. And how do you balance that evolution and that progression versus what could become sort of a decentralized, very sort of yeah. messy model that's, of data where everyone has made their own dashboards? Yeah, tell me, how do you um, balance those yeah. two? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we have a hub environment and we have hot desks in our area where people come and actually develop with us. We kind of mandate that they do develop with us. They don't have to sit 100% with us, but they need to develop with us. And, and also, they can't release anything without permission. I know and the team knows what people are working on. If somebody comes and starts working on maybe another referrals dashboard for another area, for example, we can say, hey, you know that this referrals dashboard already exists. How about you work with this person now to build it to fit your needs as well and kind of help to create that sort of culture of using the tool sets together and, and building together instead of just having three different dashboards doing the same thing. So that's one area that provides like, I guess I like to call it an organic governance. It means that because we have the single architecture, if you like, for the patient, it means that now we can guide people to come in and use that architecture as opposed to creating their own architecture. It doesn't completely remove the different versions of the truth, unfortunately, but at least it helps to make it a lot better because people still take the dashboards and make their own stories from that, which you yes. can't actually help. But at least if you're providing them the same information and helping make that more governed, that works really well. Really interesting. And how did you come to the hub model for your team? So actually it started with a particular team member. It's actually a team member of mine now, but wasn't at that time. He was working in another area of the business and we had been talking with that area of the business about building them a dashboard for them. And he later came to me and said, look, I'm actually studying, studying this. I would be so keen to be involved with your team. And I said, well, I actually don't have any spaces in the team, but why don't you do this work under our guidance? I had that conversation with his director and she was really keen on the approach and thought it was a great one. And so it started from there. And I realized after that how well targeted his work was and, and just how effective it was to do that and started then having conversations with other areas who came to me. I said, well, what, what, why don't you build it? And I realized as well that it was creating us a lot more capacity where before we were saying, no, we don't have time for the next two or three years to do this work. Suddenly we're saying, yeah, we've got the capacity to come in and build it. And actually what it's left us with is we thought we had two to three years worth of work and now we're actually sitting here going, oh, what are we going to do in three months' time? Um, <laughs> which is fantastic. So that's where it started from. And while we were doing that, we started to realize the needs for the governance aspect and the controls around it. And again, it was another greenfield for me, I guess, another opportunity to build something in a different way. And now it was more at the strategic level as opposed to at the coding level. But it still, you know, was another opportunity to build something different. Uh, later, I found out that a lot of other organizations do something similar, not quite to the same extent. They do have that hub and spoke model. But um, I think we've gone that step further by actually training them to do that work themselves um, rather than giving a completely decentralized and distributed analytics tool set. Correct. I agree. It is a really, really interesting implementation to have people come into your space to work on what they need for their roles. I think it's great. And could you give us a, an overview of your remit and responsibilities as a director of analytics and performance at the matter? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's to manage a, t a team, to manage a platform, I guess. 
and also to obviously coordinate and keep the strategy. So obviously at the outset, I set a strategy and that strategy I had four pillars. The first one was to meet the existing needs of the organisation. Uh, the second one was about the innovation and creating something a bit more future focused. The third okay. one was about the cultural aspect, building a, a culture of data literacy in the organisation. And the fourth one was about maintaining a more organisational wide strategy, if you like. And how big is your team and how is it organized? What skill set and what sort of maybe sub-teams do you have in there? Well, actually, you're now approaching a, a new thing that's happening in our area at the moment. So I started with a very small team. And what we've actually done, so we have in the organization two teams that particularly focus on visualization of data. Mine was called the Analytics and Performance Team and the other was called the Marta Performance Portal, which was slightly different. It was like the self-serve paper, like financial reports and tables and things, much more than the graphical visualization. And ours was much more sort of visualization and graphical. And then there was also a data services team that were often asked also for data extract. And so what we've actually done, and this is a new change that's happening in the last six months, is to combine all the three teams together. And we have actually a leader over top of that. So I report into somebody else now who is coordinating that and we're implementing this hub approach that I've implemented on a smaller scale now on a much larger scale, which is really quite exciting. It's exciting, but it also is very difficult in a way because we're trying to combine some of the practices within the teams and there's a lot of sort of emotion and passion behind that, which is absolutely wonderful, but also creates stress in the team. So managing through that is kind of a, a new dynamic and quite interesting as well. Exactly. That is so interesting. Really good model. And how do you work through the dependencies that will exist or that will come out through the demands of the users? And by that, I mean the user would come into your area wanting to do a visualization, a new data product, an investigation, and there will be a reliance on a data warehouse or a data repository that it sounds like it, it's in a different team now in a sister team essentially but um, yep. how do you work through those dependencies in the chain? So we have in our area so in the visualize so now we've split it into there's more visualization and then there's data in the visualization area we still have data specialists so we have people in the team who are very specifically visualization specialists and they help the other users with the visualization. They also do some of their own visualization and some of the data science aspect as well. But then we also have users in there that are more geared at the data, but they understand very well the needs of the visualization people and work closely with them. And they're slowly working on and training up the people that were much more data services focused and helping them to understand the visualization needs. It's slow. It's happening, but it is slow. It needs to be. It's a long learning curve. That's interesting. And in your role, do you work across the hospital or do you work specifically in certain areas? And if so, which ones are those? No, we work across the whole hospital, but not just the hospital. We actually have a group. So MARTA is made up of MARTA Education, MARTA Foundation, MARTA Research, and obviously MARTA Health as well. And so we cover all of those areas across. Each of those areas do have some specialists in their area who also interact with us as a, on a hub-type basis. I had no idea. That's amazing. And with that broad remit, what are you focusing on at the moment? What's sort of um, taking your mind space at the moment? What problems are you working through? I think the biggest problem that I'm working through at the moment is the combining of the teams, to be honest. That's still a very big a very big piece of work. While we still continue and deliver and maintain those relationships that we've been keeping going, the thing is that we now need to 
combine practices. So take, for example, the project management approach that we've been using in different teams, and they have each been different. Now finding one that actually fits the whole new dynamic is interesting and it's taking up quite a bit of time, but it's a great thing to sort of look at and fine tune because these things you do when you're setting up your own team and you decide how their project management will be run and you set it that way. Over time, we sort of adapted ours originally to make it a lot more flexible. And then you had some of the other areas, which was the finance area, they had a far, far less flexible, perhaps too inflexible approach to it. Sort of finding a fine balance that meets the needs of finance, but also fits in well with the uh, developers that we have, which have a little bit more freedom. Yeah, so we've been implementing, obviously, a far more structured, agile form than what we had originally been using. So that's probably taken a lot of time and thought and just redefining centralized structures and things where, you know, we might have had our own data dictionary before and other teams have had theirs and we've had our own data architecture before and other teams have had theirs, kind of coming to a defined single structure. That's taking a lot of our thought and, and things at the moment, whilst we keep the work going. Exactly. That'd be interesting. And what's ahead for you? What's coming up sort of in the future ah, for, the, for the, your role at the department? That's actually a very, very good question. I am actually also starting my own business now, and it is called Data Literate by Design. It's just starting, and the goal of this will be to train people in data literacy. It will be to help people understand how they can use their data to tell a story. It will also be to consult with companies to help them understand how to set up an environment that will propagate data literacy through the organization. And in my current role also at the MARTA, we're looking at changing the direction that I'm taking to be a little bit more that way focused. So um, I'm taking on the role of increasing the data literacy throughout the organization of MARTA. Um, that hasn't been formally formalized yet, so we may have to think about how that's set, but it's slowly that's taking shape. That's amazing. And is the view that your new company and your existing role, is the view that they coexist or are you going to have to yes. pick one? Yeah, no, they'll, they coexist. I may at another date have to pick one, but for the next, for the foreseeable future, I think they need to coexist. It's a great opportunity for it to do so as well because it means that the frameworks that I'm putting in place at the MARTA and for my company as well will be something that can be tried and tested, so it's quite good. That is outstanding. And where did the motivation for the company come from? I've wanted to do something like this for many, many years. And obviously, in London, I hadn't really been working on my reputation or building it up on purpose. So I never really kind of built my network enough to do anything about it. Over here, I've been purposely building and working on my network and growing my reputation, I believe. I hope it's been growing effectively, but slowly I'm working on that. And I think that I'm now in a place where I can actually start to see that happen, to see my company start to take shape. Yeah, congratulations for taking the step. Very well done. Definitely wish you all the best. And I think the problem that you've chosen to tackle is a, a very important one and one where many companies, many organizations definitely need help in that space. Yeah, so I think really I'm really looking forward to kicking that off. I'm hoping that it will be as successful as I think it will be. You've got to believe these things, of course, but um, I do think that it will be a success. Definitely. That is fantastic. Rachel, this has been so interesting and so much fun. And before we were coming, obviously, to the end of our, of our time, but before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, do you have a piece of advice or a takeaway that you would like to leave the listeners with, something that would help them through their careers to make decisions or help them on their journey? Yeah, I think the very first thing is do what you're passionate about. So if you are passionate about data, then do it. Get involved, but 
do more than you're asked to do, do more than is expected. And I think really follow that dream and stay passionate about that. Don't lose focus, build your focus and grow on it. So my focus now is data literacy and improving the data literacy of Australia and maybe the world. I think big. I'm believing that um, I can make a big influence in the realm of data literacy. And I think that that's where you should set your mind is thinking big and go for it. I love it. And that is a fantastic note to end on. Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your journey, your insights, your wisdom. I'm so impressed with uh, everything that you've done. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it all. Thanks very much. I enjoyed the opportunity. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.